church. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have bad news and good news. The bad news is Ronnie Norman is not in this pulpit today. The good news is in about 25 minutes, I won't be either. <laughs> and you can be on about your way and uh, have a um, nice day. Uh, when somebody says, have a nice day, it's pleasantry, it's polite, it's nice. If someone says roughly the same thing, but just rewords it this way, have a nice next 24 hours. It's a little ominous undertone to that. You don't know exactly what they're implying about what's just ahead. Imagine if you had been walking with Jesus in John 13, 33, and he said, I am with you only a little while longer. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus continued to give his disciples these intimations that things were about to change dramatically. And they were about to be slammed emotionally. We have a little graphic here about four core emotions. You can boil it all down to those right there that we're either basically glad, sad, mad, or afraid. But that simple little illustration doesn't capture the incredible emotional roller coaster ride that these disciples with Jesus were about to go on. They were going to go from the incredible heights of elation like they had at the triumphal entry on Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, when the masses were praising Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. They're going from up there on that peak to the valley of death to total emotional devastation because shortly they're going to in in front of their faces see Jesus betrayed arrested then denied then tried then condemned and then crucified He'd been trying to tell them, but it had been going over their heads, over and over and over their heads. On this, the worst of all days, Jesus, something on the outline if you're following along, he realizes his disciples are frail and they're about to fall. They're about to get slammed emotionally like they've never been hit or hurt before. And so he wants to give them his help. He wants to give them his heart. And so he stops them and he tells them this. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. 
Verse 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And then he dropped down the page, down to verse 27, and Jesus sums up everything he's trying to convey, everything he's trying to give. And he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. They really didn't understand how much they were about to need those precious promises. 30 years later, Peter would write in 2 Peter 1 that we had received great exceedingly great and precious promises through which we could become partakers of the divine nature right right here right now they don't know what's coming J.M. Barry playwright wrote the beloved Peter Pan he also wrote a book about his mother Margaret Ogilvie and he told how about three weeks before her death, he went to visit her, and his sister brought her family Bible into the room and set it in their mother's lap. And Barry said, and it fell open as it always does to John chapter 14. His mother, his family, they'd lost a son and a brother in a terrible accident years ago. They were never the same. But John 14 was a blessing to them to know that Jesus had prepared a place for all of them, all of their family. Jesus promises us, number one on your outline, his peace. The verse we just read, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Some of you may know the name of Shirley Caesar, one of the queens of gospel music from a few decades ago. Her career spans seven decades, by the way. Many hit songs, and one of them was, This Joy That I've Got. And the next line goes, This Joy I've Got, The World Didn't Give It, and The World Can't Take It Away. That's what Jesus is trying to give to his disciples. A peace that passes the world's understanding that the world can never take away from them. Jesus says, these things have I spoken to you that in... Uh, let me tell you where I'm reading from, by the way. Jump with me to John 16, verses 20, uh, 32 through 33. The hour has now come that you will be scattered each to his own. You will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. That's the peace that he has, the peace of the Father's presence. You may have the idea that peace is really just the absence of war, the absence of want, the absence of woe or worry, but it's more. It must be the presence of God if it's the peace that Jesus gives. He says, I am not alone. My Father is with me. These things have I spoken to you that you may in me, that you may in me have peace.
peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Imagine saying cheers to people that are just about to go into this emotional maelstrom. But that's what he did. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, this is the peace that he's giving. There's another kind of peace that was available all around Jesus and his disciples. It was the Roman peace, Pax Romano. Pax Romano was a 200-year period beginning in B.C. 27 with the arrival of Augustus on the imperial throne of Rome, lasting out to about 180 A.D., the death of the last good emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And during that 200 years, Rome had unprecedented peace and prosperity. It was a glorious thing that there was no civil war and that people, there was free bread in the streets of Rome. Bread in circuses, you may have heard. Uh, there was uh, uh, just wonderful new advancements. Roman roads could carry you anywhere. Roman aqueducts could bring water anywhere. And it was wonderful. Now, Augustus had this structure that you see behind me here built. The Senate authorized it, but Augustus, it was his idea. The greatest politician who ever lived and the greatest propagandist who ever lived, Augustus, ruled 41 years. This is an altar to peace, Ara Pacis. It's in a museum in Rome built for it in 2006, and it is gorgeous. It is all, it's about 35 feet square. It's Carrera marble. It's got the best carving that any Romans ever did. The Romans had to basically borrow all their good art from the Greeks before them. But this was excellent work. And it's even better than you could tell from looking at it. It was rediscovered in the mid-1800s and dug up in the early 1900s and reassembled. And now it's, you can go visit it in the Arapacus Museum. Uh, it's on the Tiber River just across from the Vatican. But the reason to go see it is to see what the world is selling. This is this place, the carvings, uh, the Romans on, in the carvings were surrounded by garlands of fruit and flowers and domestic animals and little children and swans. And it was peace. But at what price? What did these people pay for that peace? The Roman roads and the Roman aqueducts were built with slave labor. The conquerors, the victors, they get the spoils. They also get to write the history books. Did you know there is not a single word? Not a single word from a Roman slave that has come down to us about what that was like. But one of every th three people you met in the city of Rome on the street was a slave. They were either a captive in war or they may have been a baby that was a foundling cast out unwanted by its parents on the city dump and picked up. If the dogs didn't get it, the slave traders would and they'd raise them to be slaves and servants. But these people... Uh, 
they didn't benefit from the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome for them, it either meant surrender or slaughter. It meant serve or be enslaved. These people didn't have anything. They were non-persons. They couldn't own any property. They couldn't marry. They couldn't keep their own children if they had any. And you know, they didn't even have their own names. In the New Testament, you meet some of these in the epistles of Paul. Secundus, Tertius, Quarto, or Quartus. Number two, number three, number four. They were named like that by their owners. The devil treats people this way too, just like Imperial Rome treated these poor people. He wants to entice you and entertain you, but in the end, he's going to enslave you. And the price will be far, far too high to pay. That's the peace of Rome. Tacitus, the great Roman historian who wrote Annals, and he also wrote Agricola. In Agricola, he te- who's his father-in-law, by the way, a great Roman general who was fighting in Britain, he tells his story and everything that he did. But he tells of a, a speech made by a Scot Celtic chieftain named Calgacus, or Calgacus. In the speech, Calgacus is telling his tribesmen who are going out to fight a great battle against the Roman legions. He tells them this, the Romans, they have pillaged the world. They plunder, they butcher, they ravish, and they call it by the lying name of empire. And then here's the line. It's the single most famous line from Tacitus. They make a desolation and they call it peace. That was an amazing indictment of what was really wrong with Rome by someone whose father-in-law was a famous general of the Roman armies. That's the kind of peace that Satan wants to make with you. Jesus offered his disciples, he said, my peace. Jesus made a different kind of peace. And he made it, as we heard in the communion meditation that was so wonderfully shared a moment ago in the Garden of Gethsemane when he got down on his knees and for the last time Jesus asked for something for himself. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed it three times. And when he got up, Jesus had died to self and to sin and was alive to do his Father's will. And he has about him this amazing peace. This calm and confident concern for others around him. He says in chapter 15, verses 13 and 15, Greater love has no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. You are no longer my servants. I have called you friends. This man is going to be dead in 24 hours in the most horrific way yet known to man. 
and he's talking to his friends about them. In chapter 18, verse 8, when the cowardly temple guards come to arrest him in midnight with torches and uh, swords, and they fall down backwards when he just steps up and tells them his name. He says to them, and look who he's talking about. He says, I am he. I've already told you this. I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. He's thinking of others. In Luke 23, 28, a throng of wailing women are following him through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha. And Jesus, who's been beaten already to within an inch of his life, stops and turns around and says to them, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. To the brutal Roman legionnaires who were nailing him to a cross, who didn't know who he was or what they were doing, Jesus looks up to heaven and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How is that possible? How could a person be so focused on the needs of others when everything he had was being ripped from him? Someone said it this way. His faith was in the Father, his Father, but his mind was on me and on you. Do you know the name of Matthew West, the contemporary Christian musician? Have you heard his music? Anybody? Okay, when you go back to your car, get your cell phone out, not here, and Google Matthew West and the song, Me on Your Mind. Matthew West has written some of the most beautiful Christian music, contemporary Christian music you will ever hear. The, the music is as good as the lyrics. But here are the lyrics. I've read the words and read how you leave the 99. To find the one missing feels like that was written with me on your mind. I've read the words and read of a heavenly home on high. You're preparing a place where the sorrows erased. And when I stand before you, I'll find all along it was me on your mind. Those beautiful words are really, really an apt description of what Jesus was thinking and doing in the last hours of his life. How can we have that peace, that presence, that sense of, of calm and confident caring for those who mean the most to us, even when we are suffering and, and, and surrounded by sadness well, the answer is we can possess this peace by believing in God and believing in Jesus. He said it. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. John, uh, John chapter uh, 14, verse 1. Now, when he says this, it is more than believe that. It is rather believe in in believe that is good and necessary and it's mentioned in john chapter 20 verse 31 where jesus says 
uh, Brother John says, these are written, these things about this man are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But in John chapter 3, verse 16, we have the next level of believing, where you believe in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. It's the difference in a proposition that you give mental assent to. You know, the, James says, uh, the devils believe and tremble. But this is more is, is required. We must do more than believe that. We must believe in. I, I've got a picture here of a gentleman on a tightrope. His name was Charles Blondine. He was French, probably the greatest acrobat and daredevil of the 19th century. He's crossing the Niagara Falls on a three-inch hemp rope 1,100 feet long. He has no net. He never had any life insurance either. He said, who would ride it? But if you look at, you can't quite appreciate this fact that even at its lowest point, that rope is about 170 feet off the water. Have you driven from Port Arthur to Bridge City and Orange over the Rainbow Bridge, the tallest bridge in the south? It's 177 feet from the roadbed to the water. That's what that man right there was looking down at. But he was a master of his, uh, his skill. He had done this twice already uh, earlier in the month of July 1859. Announced they were going to do it again. They were putting on huge shows. They had 100,000 people on the banks of the Niagara on the Canadian and the New York side. President Millard Fillmore was present that day to see this feat. And Charles Blondine comes out, and every time he did the stunt, he upped his game. This time, the first trip across from New York to Canada, he walked backwards the whole way. He'd done a lot of other great stunts that just too numerous to mention. But he took a little break, and he came back across pushing a wheelbarrow. And the crowd was greatly amused. They cheered. They jeered. Some of them said he was going to fall off for sure. And he asked them, do you believe I can push this all the way across? Just the wheelbarrow. And some said, yes. And he said, get in the wheelbarrow. That's the difference in believing that and in believing in where you get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus Christ pushing it. You have given up command and control, and you have entrusted your life, your heart, and soul to him forevermore. That's what Jesus needs for us to do in order for us to have his peace and to be his friends. There was a great Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren, and he wrote a paragraph, just a line really, about this claim of Jesus, this demand of the Lord to believe in him. He said, what signalizes him 
and separates him from all other religious teachers is not the clearness or the tenderness with which he reiterates the truth about the divine father's love or his morality or his justice or his truth or his goodness but rather it is the peculiarity of his call to the world believe in me now that brings us to point number two on our little outline if you're following along Jesus promises us not just his peace, but his presence. He says, in my Father's house there are many dwellings or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Many mansions. Do any of you recognize that one? I grew up in the Mid-South which is a region anywhere within 150 miles of Memphis, Tennessee. And if you say mansion in Memphis, you're talking about Graceland. And that's what that was. Now, that's the mental image that a lot of us have when we think of many mansions. I don't think it's what Jesus was talking about. Jesus used the word mono or mane. Uh, monai is the plural and it simply meant, in the ancient Greek, a dwelling, a place to rest. The New Testament got translated into Latin in 328 by Jerome, into the Vulgate is the name of the common Latin. And they used the word here, mansio, which uh, again means dwelling, but you can see where it's going. It goes into the old French as maison. And then it comes into the Old English as mansion. And we get a little linguistic linguini where we say, in my father's house, there are many mansions. It's kind of hard to think about how that would all fit together. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being with me. This may be a bit of a surprise. Something for you to think about. The word heaven is not used in John chapter 14 anywhere it's not in there he is talking about it but not directly what he's talking about he says I, he doesn't say I'm going to take you com I'm coming back to get you and take you to heaven he says I'm going to take you unto myself this word Monet is an interesting word uh, in that it is what is called uh, there's a, a, a linguistic, scholarly term, very fancy, hapax legomenon. It means once said. It means a word that's only spoken once or written once in a work. And they're hard to translate because you can't compare it with anything. This is not that. It's the next best thing uh, or, or hardest thing. It's a dis legomenon, which means twice spoken. You can find it one other place in the Bible and you can compare what it means. And that place happens to be down the page in verse 23 when Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, our Monet, with him. That's what he meant. That's what we should think. Rather than be focused on the architecture, 
Jesus' point is not the place, but it's our position in relation to him. That where I am, there you may be also. There's an old Methodist hymn that goes like this. What matters where on earth we dwell, on mountaintop or in the dell, in cottage or a mansion fair, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. Jesus says this in a very intimate and dear way in John 17. When he's down on his knees praying for us in John 17, in verse 24, he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. How, how sweet, how special. It was you on his mind. Third point, Jesus promises us himself as our pathway. Now, the human mind and human heart, we have an uh, affection and an attraction to temple rituals and to religious recipes. And the reason is, is because either way you go, you're in control. You're manipulating the deity, or you're working out your own righteousness. But Jesus does away with all of that. He's not interested in Ten Commandments or Twelve Steps or Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He is interested in one thing, one relationship, one person. And he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's a little book I want you to look at the cover of. I've got a picture of it. Imitation of Christ. The Imitation of Christ. Have you ever heard of it? The Imitation of Christ? Uh, if you have a Catholic background, you might have. Written by Thomas Akempis, a monk in 1425. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a little surprising because it's the second most popular book in the world. It was, it's gone through 2,000 editions. It's about imitating Christ and having a personal relationship with Christ. And in the book, the writer has these words coming from God or Jesus to us. Follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Follow me. I have another picture I want you to look at and we'll conclude. Let's go back to Niagara Falls real quick. <laughs> Charles Blondin did a lot of stunts. Some people think the best one was he took a, a, actually a small cast iron stove out there on the rope with him and made an omelet and lowered that omelet by rope down to tourists in the boat, the maid, the, the maid of the mist. But I think this was the greatest thing he ever did on the tightrope because he, he actually risked everything on behalf of another. On this trip across, he invited his manager, Harry Colcord, to get on his back. And he walked across with another man and the weight of him on him. These are Blondine's instructions to Colcord. Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondine. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt 
to do any balancing yourself. Because if you do, we will both fall to our deaths. What a metaphor for how the power of the gospel must work if it works in us. We must not look down. We must not look within. We must look up to Jesus. We must be one with him. We are no longer ourselves. We are him. And we must not try to DIY this thing because we will mess it up. Paul summarized it this way, and in conclusion, I give you a verse. I want you to do a little homework, a memory verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I want you to take this scripture and write it down and take it and make it a part of your routine. Make it, tape it to your morning mirror and recite it every day until it's inscribed on your heart. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in, not that. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you, church.